I wanted to say just a further word about a couple of things. Number one, the bottom of page 239, Dr. Cook is speaking about the fear of death being removed, and yet the fact is we all have some fear that's associated with dying. The first year that I came to Oregon was the year of the great Columbus Day windstorm that came through Portland, howling, and came clear up the Willamette Valley, as a matter of fact, did a great deal of damage and so forth, and we were in a little house in Gladstone, and the wind came in gusts, as you may know, and we were due, this was Friday, as I recall, and we were due on Sunday to drive to Eugene. I was going to preach down there, and our car was in our little garage, and there were a lot of trees in our yard, and the thought came that if one of those trees fell down over the driveway, I wouldn't be able to get out. I didn't have any kind of logging tools or anything to help, so I thought, boy, I'd better go out between bursts of wind here and see if I can get the car out of the garage. I can park it across the street, and across the street was a big open park, and there wasn't anything there but a few little saplings along the parkway, and that wouldn't be no problem. But uh, there were four large hawthorn trees down the side of the driveway and a big oak, or not an oak, a maple right in the front yard. So uh, the wind kind of calmed down a little bit and I went sprinting out of the house. <clears throat> Just as I got to the garage door and it had a little latch that you turned and opened and these old-fashioned doors, two doors that you pull like this, I just started to reach for the latch and the wind started to blow strong. And I heard these limbs waving and the trees were creaking and I got so scared all of a sudden usually not too much scares me you know I just am too stupid to be afraid of a lot of things but that I, I just felt the fear sweep over me I didn't want to die now look I was a Christian man I was born again by the power of God baptized by the Baptist preacher I mean there uh, I was even a student at Western Baptist Seminary but I was still afraid and we have to ask ourselves, if the fear of death is in fact removed, why are we afraid? Well, the fact that we are afraid is probably part of our nature that God places within our hearts to show a little bit of prudence about certain things. One of my MA students that's writing a thesis for me has a spot he wants to take me fishing. But to get to the spot, he says about the last 10 feet is a little bit difficult you've got to press yourself up against the side of this cliff and ease around the, the corner by your heels so that you can cast into the right hole um, now I don't know I'm gonna watch him do it first and uh, maybe I might find a way to swim in there but uh, you know I can't neglect the fishing spot I mean that's not even a question but getting there uh, is another way I went elk hunting some years back and had a horse fall on me and that wasn't too much fun and uh, the saddle on that horse had a, a brass horn hanging up about this high that if that would have caught me in the belly button it would have been all she wrote and uh, this horse slipped on the ice and I could see he was going to do it and so I'm smart you see I've been on a lot of horses in a lot of tough country so I just kicked my feet out of the stirrups and when the horse falls I'm going to jump off right the horse fell to his knees and I jumped off the problem was when I jumped, who's laughing out there? Uh, <laughs> the problem was when I jumped off, the horse got his feet again, and I slipped under him, and off I went off the side of this trail, which was only about this wide, 
and I was down about 10 feet below him in shale rock. And I could not get my feet under me. I was struggling. It was pitch black. This horse was a paint horse. I could see the white of him up there. And I'm struggling to get away because I feel like he's going to fall. And if he does, I'm thinking about that big saddle horn. And I'm trying to get away. And about that time, the horse lost his footing and rolled. And in the providence of God, I was right by a big log that stood about three feet high. And that, that protected him from coming any further. <clears throat> well, as... <coughs> I'll get it straight in a minute. As... Uh, as he rolled then, I was right by his neck, and I thought, oh, well, everything is fine here. And just at that moment, he rolled over one more time, and now his feet, he's struggling with all four feet, and, you know, those, that was, well, they weren't that big, but they seemed that big. Uh, <laughs> his feet are like this. Now I'm not so worried about getting killed as I am about getting broken, broken bones, and we're still about four miles from town, pitch black, and I've got to get there, right? So now I'm struggling in the other direction, trying to get uphill away from him. And about that time, he rolled over one more time. This time, he's rolling on my pet rifle, and he's grinding my, my uh, sight into the dirt. And so now I'm trying to get right back down to him to pull my rifle out. You talk about a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I really went through it. Uh, but I was afraid when that happened. I slid underneath him, and that horse started to fall. Well, God puts it in us to make us more prudent. I haven't been elk hunting in that spot since. Uh, and if I do, I'm going to take my own horse. He doesn't fall. But we need to remember that there is a fear, and that I don't believe it's an unchristian fear that we have, but we need to, di to differentiate between terror and fear. The natural reticence to go through an experience we've never been through before is not a non-Christian response but the terror of death where the unbeliever dies recognizing that there is nothing for him but to face God whom he may have scoffed at or otherwise disbelieved and to face the results of a misspent life that's a, that's another story entirely and so the terror of death still is upon the unbeliever the reticence or the caution or fear of death is still upon all men including believers now we remember that there in terms of remedy for death there are several things that are offered for physical death remedy is resurrection the last enemy which shall be destroyed is death first corinthians 15 speaks of that and suggest that the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection overcame death and in our resurrection we shall overcome death this is an experience that we will go through once physical death never again to be repeated like physical birth Nicodemus asked the question how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again can't happen physical birth happens only once of course Jesus was talking about spiritual birth and then <clears throat> For spiritual death, the key to that is eternal life. And remember, spiritual death is what? Separation from God. And you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. Or spiritually alive and physically dead. Or, as I trust you are, physically and spiritually alive. And then eternal death, there is no remedy for that because that is spiritual death made permanent. 
eternal death takes place when the unbeliever dies physically. He who is spiritually dead, separated from God, now becomes physically dead, separated, uh, separating his body and soul. Now there is no more opportunity, eternal death. This comes from a quote in a 90th birthday interview. Arthur Rubinstein, the great pianist, said, quote, I was once asked if I believed in life after death. I don't, but I'd certainly have a lovely surprise if it is true after all. Maybe. You see, so many people have an idea about eternal life. If it exists at all, it's the same for everyone. And after all, God knows what a good piano player I am. Won't he be nice to me? When Albert Einstein died, I was a sergeant in the Air Force, and a fellow that I used to play chess with all the time was uh, a Jew, as Einstein was, and an agnostic, as Einstein was, and the subject of heaven came up often in our conversations and eternal life and the response of my chess playing partner was well of course Einstein is in heaven look at all the good things he did for humanity and to him that's what counted something like the old idea of St. Peter sitting at the pearly gates with a scale in his hand and you stand there on the trap door and he weighs them up and if the good things outweigh the bad things, he pushes the button that opens the gate. If the bad things outweigh the good things, he pushes the other button, away you go. But of course, in this day and age, the concept of hell, eternal punishment, has largely vanished from society. There's an article by uh, the pastor of Countryside Evangelical Covenant Church that I have before me, in which he asked the question, what has become of eternity? And he suggests that in modern preaching and teaching, very little is done with respect to eternity, either heaven or hell. Now, if you're a youth worker or a Sunday school worker of some kind, have any opportunity to, to look at various Sunday school literatures, just take a look and see how many times there is a lesson on heaven or a lesson on hell. How to get along with your parents, how to do good in school and still be a Christian, so forth and so on, these kinds of things. But when you get down to the crucial doctrinal issues of eternity not too much is done and he brings out some interesting concepts he says we find church institutionalists stressing ecclesiastical structures programs budget we find church social activists empowered in strategic places using the church as a change agent to create a heaven here on earth we find church conservatives engrossed in, engrossed in pursuit of esoteric doctrines of health wealth and happiness and presumed payoffs of the gospel. We find charismatics and Pentecostalists zealously pursuing immediate religious experience and instant spiritual gratification. What indeed has become of eternity? And Roman Catholics have faced this same issue. The liberation theologians of Central America, what are they concerned with? Social reform, no concept of heaven or hell. Uh, there's a quote by our, our late beloved president, uh, President Roosevelt that uh, says something like this, if it were necessary, I would take a hold of the hand of the devil himself to defeat the, the Nazi 
uh, the Nazi armies. And people will get like that when they are desperate. If they have no concept of eternity and eternal consequences, if everything you're interested in is here, you have no concept of eternity, and believe me, your life is a shambles. Now, Christian people can get like that, so you don't need to sit and look so piously at me. Uh, it's very easy to have your life wrapped up in the current goals. I want to get through seminary. I want to get a big church. I want to be a success. I want my children to grow up. I want, you know, and everything centered in now. And just think back through the preaching that you have heard in recent months. It's surprising to me how few times churches are really stirred up in terms of eternity. Dr. J. Vernon McGee has said more than once that if hell is not being preached, the gospel is not being preached. In other words, if the concept of eternal punishment is not a part of the package, how can there be eternal reward? I heard a psychologist say that on the radio yesterday. He's a pagan psychologist as far as I know. But he says, if everybody is rewarded, there is no reward. Interesting from a, uh, a secularist, isn't it? Well, what about the immortality of the soul? I'd like to give you four philosophic evidences. These are not biblical. There's a lot of biblical evidence. But these are philosophic arguments that I find pretty strong in terms of eternity. First of all, the historical argument or you might call it the anthropological argument, the doctrine of eternity is found in all nations, in all cultures, and at all times. <coughs> this is the historical or the anthropological argument. It's a, it's a universal doctrine that some concept of eternity seems to be planted in the heart of man. And secondly, there's the metaphysical argument. Metaphysical, that which is beyond the physical. The immaterial nature of man is essentially indissoluble. The only thing that can be dissolved is material things. And so in the nature of the case, the unity, the structure of the immaterial part of man argues for the indestructibility of that part of man's constitution, the metaphysical argument. This, of course, goes clear back to Plato. And as far as I know, philosophers have never refuted it. If they admit that there is an immaterial part, the only way really that you can confute this is to say man has no immaterial part. He is simply uh, bones and flesh and nerve endings. Thirdly, there's the teleological argument. Teleological argument. That is the plan concept or the proper end concept. Do human uh, people, human beings, have capabilities beyond their time frame or financial status or whatever to accomplish? Absolutely. If you went to business school, could you get a PhD in business? Harvard Law School, get a degree from there, med school, so forth. Albert Schweitzer did a few of those things. He was one of the world's greatest Bach experts. 
and an organist of tremendous abilities, became a medical doctor, went to Lombarani in the Congo. He still didn't develop everything he could have developed. You see, I remember seeing a picture published in Life magazine one time. He didn't have an organ there or a piano, so he had taped on his desk uh, a keyboard, photographic reproduction or something, you know, on paper, keyboard, and he was there playing Bach. He was listening in his inner ear, so to speak. Uh, later on, he was able to get that sort of thing. But a man of absolutely tremendous capabilities, and, and you are too. But time, financial limitations, all of these things hold you back. Some people have an ability just to get good at something when their productive years are over. How long does it take to become a, an outstanding violinist? Could Yitzhak Perelman be a good string bass player? Sure. But he doesn't have time to practice the violin and the bass, and could he play the French horn? Probably. Do real well at it, and so forth. That's the kind of thing that the teleological argument has. Men have aspirations that they can never touch. I've met a number of people in my life that uh, wish they had been able to train for the ministry, but because of family demands or other things, just never happened. And then fourthly, the moral argument. And here this relates, touches on the problem of evil. The current unequal and unfair distribution of goods and blessing and evil. The current unfair distribution of goods and blessings and evil. Why do some people have so many terrible things happen to them? How is it that the town crook often is the one who has the healthiest body, the best house, and the longest car? Years ago, when I was in the Air Force, we used to go to all kinds of little towns and, and play for parades and so forth, and of course the parade would always form up on the outskirts of town, and we had a black kid from Chicago that was quite a card in our, in our band, and so we came around the corner. We're still out in the suburbs, just kind of marching along. We're not ready to really enter the parade yet, but we come by this house. It had like two acres of grass for a lawn and a man and a woman dressed there. You know, the typical picture of uh, what used to be called gracious living. I don't know if the home, Metter Homes and Gardens and others refers to it in the same way or not anymore. But anyway, here they were relaxed with a highball glass in their hand and so forth, and we are hot and sweaty. It was one of those Northern California days that really uh, takes it all out of you. And we're struggling along thinking, oh, now we've got a four-mile parade ahead of us, and look at this guy, and this kid from Chicago is marching next to me. He says, hey, guys, look, there's the town crook, and it just broke up the band. Uh, and that's, that's typical, and it, of course, especially for the ghetto person. He thinks the only way out of here is either to be a great basketball player or to run the numbers racket or prostitution, something like that. And how is that, that the, the pimp on the corner can, can have a Cadillac car and I've got to drive my old Ford van held together with chewing gum and bailing wire. And what's fair about that? I'm adding a lot more to society than he is, you see. So the current unequal and unfair distribution of goods and evil and blessings, the wicked and the criminals, the shiftless may prosper and relax and enjoy life, the pious may suffer in poverty and disappointment, is there no hope for justice or redress of all of these ills? I say yes, and that argues philosophically for eternity. 
So those four arguments, I think, are philosophical that you may well use. Somebody, if you want to take out your Bible, they may not want to hear the Bible. But these are philosophical arguments that you can use on the university campus and with those who are skeptical in other ways of Scripture. And uh, an agnostic, an unbeliever, uh, an atheist, he has a hard way to go to work his way around these other than to say, it's all chance. It's all chance. And so you just hope for your best chance and your best luck. Now, over on uh, page 243 and 244, Dr. Cook is speaking of the state of mankind between death and resurrection, and that is to say the intermediate state. References to the state of death in Scripture. There is a realm where the righteous and the wicked are included, and the concept of Sheol and the grave, and many times this reference is from the viewpoint of the people that are left, the view viewpoint of the people who are alive on the earth. There's a veil, there's a mystery that we've spoken about before with regard to death that we simply cannot see through. We have some revelation regarding that, but especially in the Old Testament, this was not very well revealed and not very well known. And, of course, there are certain false teachers, JWs and others, who come up with their concepts of, I've got a, a reproduction of a couple of chapters of a book here that the JWs have published. It was interesting. The first printing, five million copies. Boy, that boggles my mind. You get a book published by some Christian publishing house, and if they make 5,000, why, it's a pretty good first printing, uh, unless you're a very well-known author. But, of course, these individuals, and they're passing this sort of stuff out, and, and the, the argument goes on and on of how when a person dies, he's gone, and that's it. He simply becomes unconscious, or the concept of soul sleep, in the Scripture. The idea, however, of... The, the solution to the problem on page 244 Dr. Cook brings up regarding the concept that there is some distinction between the abode of the righteous and the abode of the unrighteous. Uh, one aspect is that there are two compartments in Sheol, some that is Sheol Hades divided into two parts, and some have argued regarding this that the wicked uh, abide, uh, abode in the lowest part of Sheol, Deuteronomy 32:22. The righteous, however, were in Abraham's bosom, or in paradise, Luke 16:22 and 23:43. And then at the bottom of the third paragraph, there he refers to a couple of passages of Scripture: Ephesians 4:9, 1 Peter 3:18 and 19. Ephesians 4:9 speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ descending to the lower parts of the earth. Now that genitive phrase, of the earth, is probably to be understood as an appositional genitive. That is to say, the lower parts which are the earth. The context does not support three stages there. He ascended and he descended. He ascended to heaven, he descended to earth. doesn't say anything about descent below the earth, although the Apostles' Creed indicates that and a number of early church fathers have held that. And... Uh, Many commentators, in, with respect to 1 Peter 3.18, where it speaks about the Lord Jesus or someone uh, preaching to the spirits which are in prison who were 
held in prison at the time of Noah, so forth, that interesting passage. And I believe, as Dr. Cook has noted there, that the probably the better position is to say that it refers only to those who were disobedient at the time of Noah and doesn't refer to a so-called harrowing of hell where the Lord Jesus Christ, after his death, went down into hell and there announced his victory over sin. Although many, many hold that, and uh, you can kind of pay your money and take your choice there. I think exegetically it's easier to hold that it is not a harrowing of hell, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ or perhaps Christ empowering Noah at the time of the flood when he preached to those disobedient persons. Now, I'd like to have you turn your Bibles to Luke 16. Really an interesting passage. Luke chapter 16, relating to this whole concept of the intermediate state. Verse 19 and following. The picture given of this person is uh, kind of like that one I gave of the so-called town crook. There was a rich man, and he had the right clothing and the right food, and I like the way the King James says it, and he fared sumptuously. Uh, he lived high on the hog, as we say down south. And there was a certain poor man whose name was Lazarus, and he ate the crumbs and the dogs licked his sores. People are forever telling me how good that is for a sore, but it never felt too good to me when the, you know, a dog comes up and licks something. But uh, at any rate, it depicts, ab depicts absolutely the direst kind of poverty. And they both die. came to pass that the poor man died, and the angels took him into the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man died and was buried. Quite a contrast, huh? Uh, and the implication seems to be that the poor man, nobody cared about his body. The rich man, his body was cared for. It was buried. But the poor man was just left, but the angels took care of him. And when he was in hell being tormented, this rich man, he lifted up his eyes. And it's interesting, the plural is used here, being in torments, plural. I don't know whether that's a plural of difficulty or majesty, something like that, or just various kinds of torments. It's, we're not able to tell. And he saw Abraham from a distance and Lazarus in his bosom. And he lifted up his voice and said, Father Abraham, mercy me, <laughs> have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you receive your good things in your life. And Lazarus likewise, the evil things. But now, here, he is being comforted. You are being tormented. In other words, the justification of what happened in life is now taking place. There's becoming a recompense. And above all these things between us and you there is a great chasm fixed and a very strong word perfect tense is used there that verb fixed and of course you know the perfect 
indicates an action that is completed in the past with current existing results. And so the action is over with. It's already been fixed. And the results are your experience. They are now taking place and still in effect. In order that those who wish to come here from you are not able to. And the term that he uses for ability here is the strongest term in the language to indicate moral ability or inability. Morally unable to do so. They can't do it. And they are unable to pass by, pass over from here to there. Now the question arises, obviously, uh, and in this JW document that I referred to earlier with five million first edition printings or uh, copies, uh, is this a parable or is it true to life? What is the nature of the passage? And we read a number of different commentaries and the greater majority would say it's a parable. For instance, so I've got just a short list here. Geldenheis in the NIC, Farrar in the Cambridge Greek Testament, uh, Caird in his critical commentary, uh, Arndt in his commentary, Alfred, H.A.W. Meyer, and of course not, not all of these people are liberals and people who don't believe as we believe, etc., etc. But in the nature of the case, what kind of literary device is a parable? <coughs> An extended illustration. An extended illustration. Something, something taken from common experience. Common experience. <clears throat> Reflects fidelity to actuality. It shows something that's true. True to life. True to life. So, if somebody wants to call it a parable, that's okay. There's a difference between a parable and a fable, right? Aesop's fables in Greek are all jokes. They're, they're little, very humorous bits. And brought into English, I've never gotten too much of a laugh out of them, but reading them in Greek, it's really quite humorous. Of course, I think the first thing you laugh at is you finally got through the thing. And, uh, but they, they are really, they're really quite witty. But they're fables. And you've got a dolphin talking, a fox playing a trick. Of course, that's not too unusual. They're pretty foxy themselves, but they talk animals talk and so forth there are fables in scripture at least one that i know of you know that one I am. judges judges and what's the fable about the brand of bush yeah the trees electing a king and they elected the cedar of lebanon to be their king and so forth the trees don't vote they may wave their limbs but that doesn't help does it <laughs> And so if someone wants to call this a fable, that's another story. And I think most of the people who emphasize the, the uh, parabolic aspects of this do so, first of all, not understanding what the true nature of a parable is, that it is true to life. A sower went out to sow. Kingdom of heaven is like to a fisherman pulling good things and bad things out of his net and so forth. All true to life. They don't understand the nature of the literary device of fable. And secondly, they're uh, obviously grinding an axe. And this document I told you about here uh, said, how in the world could, I mean, it, it really got ridiculous. How in the world could Lazarus be expected to dip his finger in water 
and so forth and so on. Well, it's the perception of the rich man that's that's being perceived here it's in, and being described. It's not anything else. And his perception was he's still back in life, right? He's still back in physical experience thinking that this suffering will be alleviated by a little bit of water. Now, anybody who's ever been thirsty in his life has never been satisfied with the drop off someone's finger. At least you don't drink like I do, and you don't get thirsty like I do if that will resolve your problem. What it would probably do is just simply make you thirstier and ask him to go back for a gallon this time. In fact, there have been times when I've come into the house hot, tired, sweaty, thirsty, say, honey, get me a glass of water. And if it's not filled right to the brim, I'll say, what are we on a diet around here? And drink it up and go get, you know, for some more. I, I want everything I can, I can possibly hold down at that point. And if he's in suffering, thinking water will help, drip from the finger will not help. But I think the, the point is to show us the greatness of the suffering that he thinks just, just that little bit of relief would be a help. But as Abraham says, no go, friend. It's impossible. Now, several things that need to be noted here. It is not, therefore, unliteral, even if you do want to call it a parable. And it's, it's in a literary setting, which may very well be parabolic. And I, whatever you want to call it is fine with me. But it is true to life. It does depict actual events that may or may not happen, whether Lazarus exactly went through this and there was actually a person named Lazarus and so forth, that's peripheral. The point is, both the one in hell and the one in heaven are conscious. They know what's going on. That's vital. And there is a distinction between where they are, the sufferer, and where he is, the one rejoicing and enjoying the good things. As the psychologist said, if everybody gets rewarded, there is no reward. And you might say, well, they're both getting a reward, but in different places. And then you notice what goes on here. The rich man says, well, if you can't help me, then send Lazarus back. I've got five brothers. Send him back to the house of my father where I have five brothers that they may be warned and not come to this place of torment. Now he's concerned about those who follow. And that may very well be another great source of judgment and punishment. To think about a father who has dissipated his life, has disregarded his children and his friends, and now suffering in hell and thinking, oh, if someone could just go back and tell them so they don't come here, and no way to do it. Terrific suffering. And I wonder also about Lazarus. I wonder how conscious he is of what's going on in this dialogue. I would say that if the rich man can see and understand that Lazarus is conscious and enjoying blessing, 
probably not unlikely that Lazarus could understand this as well. And I wonder about his attitude. At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore, but I wonder if there is not some consciousness of failure to declare what we should declare when we have the responsibility to do so. Speculation, but I wonder. Yes, sir. I've always had problems with the implications of this because one man before he achieved heaven and the other man being rich, he, rich, he went to hell. I know that parallels with Christ's statement that it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. So maybe that's an indication that this rich man had problems with, it, with embracing the things of God. But why did he emphasize just because a man's poor, he, he gets to go to heaven just because this man's rich, he's bound for hell? Well, the words just because are yours, not the texts. Right, but still it's very, there is no other allowances for why one would go one way or one the other, just, and, and just because. Well, like. if you saw this off, lift it out of your Bible, but you haven't been so taught as far as context is concerned, have you? I mean, in other words, the hermeneutical circle has to extend from here through all of Scripture and come back again. Yeah. No indication of lifestyle or character or orientation towards God except for their financial status. So? So financial status is not a criteria for heaven or hell. How do you know that? <laughs> because I understand that the gospel of Christ relates to Exactly. And so understanding that, you have to apply that to this passage. That's what I'm saying. You can't isolate this from the rest of scriptural context. So it's obvious that it's not just a matter of personal wealth or personal poverty that gets somebody into heaven. It's obvious to me, but it's not obvious within this parable. Well, not if you saw it off. But we're going to interpret the Bible contextually and take all of scripture and uh, so when you come to something like this that doesn't seem to be understandable, what do you do? You appeal to the rest of Scripture. And so proper exegetical methodology will say, you know, since you don't get to heaven by how much money you don't have, there has to be spiritual implications in all of this. I believe Jesus brings this up specifically, mentions the poor and the wealthy, uh, particularly to confront the society of his day because their concept was if you're rich, you're righteous, and if you're poor, you're unrighteous. And we've got the same consciousness today. Listen to your television or your radio once in a while and hear what they say. Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you'll send money and help me get wealthy, Jesus will take care of you. And their, their culture was zeroed right in on this factor that if you have money, it must be because God gave it to you. Yes. There's an awful lot, I think, in the parable said about the selfishness and self-centeredness of the rich man, too. I'm not sure his wealth maybe gave him the opportunity to expand on that, but uh, I think if we do look at it contextually, it's the selfishness and self-centeredness. Well, the description in the first couple of verses. I mean, what did he do with his wealth? He spent it all on himself for his own personal pleasure. Now, that depicts a certain aspect of character, which is me first. And we got to watch out because that's the, that's the theme song of our day. I, me, my, mine, and everybody else can go hang. Yes, sir. Also, verse 14. So now the Pharisees who are lovers of money were listening to, the, to all these things. Right. So he seems to be relating that to that context. particular context. Right. 
Yes, sir. A parable is teaching one specific truth, and we don't draw conclusions from other truths uh, from the parable. We, we have to examine the truth that it's trying to teach, isn't it? Totally. Mm-hmm. As compared to other truths that we try to read into it. Although we're not making anything stand up and dance here. We are if we start limiting this parable, trying to extend this parable to teach that rich men go to heaven, poor men don't. No, I don't think that was, I don't think that was his point. I think his point was it doesn't say it here. So it, it is a conundrum. And it is out of context, but place it in the, the broader context and I think it's understandable. Right. Well, so am I. I don't really understand the concept except perhaps the concept of the Jew reclining at meal and the one who was the favored one. In other words, they would lie head to head and his head would be closest to, to Abraham in the place of greatest favor. That's, that's about all I know. Jesus refers to paradise, remember, to the thief on the cross. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And the bosom of Abraham is is mentioned, uh, Matthew 8.11, I think, mentions that. No, it just says, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say the bosom of Abraham, but, but I would say that's the metaphor there of celebration, the meal celebration, and acceptance and the place of honor right next to the, the chief one in the... In the position. That's that's the best I can do, and it's not very good. But we don't have a lot of revelation on it. Now, notice then his concern for his five brothers. Go back, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. And the response of Abraham is terrific. And Abraham says, "They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them." And here, of course, obviously here means heed. They heard them every Shabbat when they went to synagogue. They didn't heed. Let them heed them. But he said, Uki. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Not so. Powerful word here. And for him in his place to be saying that to Abraham in his place, pretty presumptuous. Arguing. Uki. Not yet, Father Abraham, but if one comes from the dead to them, they will repent. And then Abraham's response is, no, if they will not heed Moses, even if one returned from the grave, they wouldn't believe. And so, no second chance of any kind. He can't repent, he can't get across the line, he can't cross the chasm, and he can't influence his family left behind. And the power of the Word of God. If you think someone would believe, if just you could say, Shazam, and turn a pine tree into a pile of chopsticks, or if you could say something else, snap your fingers and find, you know, something else remarkable happening. Personal experience will never replace the witness of the Word of God. Years ago, when I was a young Christian, 
I had a friend lived across the way who was a year older than I. He was a pre-med student at UCLA. And uh, that's where I got to be a UCLA fan because he was interested and I was his friend and I became interested in the school and so forth. And, and we used to talk about a lot of things. And one day I was talking about the Lord with him. I was really eager for him to be saved and so forth. And he was totally skeptical. He had been raised a Roman Catholic and had become pretty disillusioned with the whole situation and took it out on God and in Scripture. He never read the Bible, but he didn't think the Bible was anything more than a group of tales by different individuals. And anyway, at one point I was saying to him in my usual undertone, uh, tactful way, listen you, <laughs> I said, uh, Jesus said, if you just believe and pray, mountains can be moved. And so his response was, okay, tell Jesus to move that car over there 10 feet. I said, nope, I can't do that. And he said, see there, it's all false. Well, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets moving a car 10 feet, I mean, there's another explanation for that. Somebody left it out of gear and the brake was off and started to roll or whatever. But the Word of God, if you don't believe that, don't look for remarkable things to happen. All right, folks, it's been fun. See you later. <laughs>